After mocking Israel and blaspheming God, David's anger is kindled as he sets his heart on the battle. Convinced he must act, David appears before Saul in order to engage the Philistine. This is the 36th sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from Samuel in chapter 17, beginning in verse 20 through verse 39. Beginning in verse 20 through verse 39. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet recounts. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the army in array, army against army. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines and spake according to the same words. And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have ye seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel has he come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine, and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and thy naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? And he turned from him toward another and spake after the same manner. And the people answered him again after the former manner. When the words were heard which David spake, they rehearsed them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock, and I went out after him and smote him, and delivered it out of his mouth, And when he arose again, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. David said, moreover, The Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. And Saul armed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of brass upon his head. Also he armed him with a coat of mail. And David girded his sword upon his armor, and he essayed to go, for he had not proved it. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David put them off him. Paul writing to us, 
as he writes to the pastor at Ephesus, Timothy, and Ephesians in chapter 6, beginning in verse 10 through verse 18. By the same Spirit, the Apostle says this, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, Take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word are we equipped against the evil day. Now hearing the blasphemies of the reprobate Philistine, David is incensed. His anger is kindled. How dare this man bellow out such blasphemies? And so David, hearing what the Philistines said, inquires as to what shall be done for the man that kills the giant. And then he asks, who is he? And how dare he blaspheme God? You see this in verse 26. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this? And notice how he, he couches his language. This uncircumcised Philistine. A, a derogatory comment that he should defy the armies of the living God. Now these were bold statements, especially since none of the men of Israel, these men who supposedly were equipped to fight, who looked like they were ready to fight, who probably had the armor like Saul had, they looked like they were ready to fight. This was a bold statement, especially since none of the men of Israel were ready as a result of crippling fear. And yet David makes these assessments. Consider, again, David's real concern. While he inquires as to what might be the repercussions for the man that becomes the victor over the giant, he was not merely looking for a reward. If we think that he was looking for a reward, we do not understand the man David. This was not his motivation. He was not looking for a reward. What he was looking for was an opportunity to position himself as the dominion man within the nation of Israel for the glory of God and for the honor of God's people. That's what he wanted. He wanted an opportunity to serve the living Christ. At this point, he already knew that God had chosen him as king. But as of this moment, he had not been publicly acknowledged. But this was his chance to do something great for God and something great for Israel. At this point in the narrative, both David and Saul had been designated as king by Samuel's anointing, yet the actual substance of the designation was to follow some actual action of victory. David was waiting to do something that would show him, that would catapult him into this mindset by the people that he was the true king. 
He would be the actual substance. Saul's demonstration of being a capable leader was very slow and faltering. When he finally was able to demonstrate any kind of leadership, it was only through intimidation, manipulation, and fear. That's the only way that Saul was able to have the people follow him. That was not a leader. That was a tyrant. And this is what enabled him to gain the upper hand against the Philistines in the past. Saul's demonstration of his leadership was fraudulent in the same way as when any political leader is established by vote of fraud, lies, intimidation, or fear. And so Saul's demonstration of leadership was a mere shadow, whereas David, by contrast, was substantive. His was the legitimate leadership, and he's going to show us that when he single-handedly slays the giant. A man is only worthy of leadership honors when he is actually demonstrating leadership capabilities and concrete leadership advances. The Reverend Long says this, he concurs, he says, David's defeat of Goliath in the name of Yahweh places him very much in the public eye and demonstrates that the Lord is with him. David's defeat of Goliath openly shows that he is God's dominion man as a result of what he has done and not what he has said. A man cannot just say, a man must do in order to be established. Note, he declares, firstly, his disgust of the Philistine, and then he does something about it. So he says he's going to do something, and then he follows through. What a novel idea. If he simply cursed the Philistine without any positive, concrete action, he would have just been like the cowering Israelites. And now there's a very important lesson here. Dominion, dominion leadership is actionable or it is nothing. Let me put it another way. The gospel is actionable or it is nothing. David, unlike the men of Israel, was a man of action. He knew what needed to be done and he did it. Even if he had to do it alone, he did it. He was a man who did not wait for anyone else to act before he took the initiative. He himself, David, the future king of Israel, he himself was the initiative. He would be also the initiator. Since each and every Christian is called by God as judge, holding a priestly kingship, we are also, like David, to take the initiative. We are to take every opportunity to be dominion men and women. This concept of of dominion influence, of leadership influence, for the glory of the kingdom of God is to be our main focus in life. Everything else in our life must be secondary if we're truly Christians. As dominion children of God, we cannot let the wicked reproach the people of the living God. We cannot let the wicked reproach His church. We cannot uh, allow Him to defy the soldiers of Christ who make up the army of the living God. We cannot allow the wicked to squash the testimony of the living Christ who is the sovereign King of the universe. We cannot allow it. And by silence, we allow it. David would not allow this Philistine to go unchallenged. David understood that he had to take action against this blaspheming giant. 
All right, so how, how do we do this? How do we establish ourselves as dominion children of God, leadership capable children of God? First, we get our own lives in order. This means that we learn to control our sinful passions and mortify our sinful tendencies which lead us astray from the path of righteous obedience. If we do not take control of our own passions, we can never defeat the giants of the Philistines. And we do this in two ways. Number one, we continue in the Word of God prayerfully, being instructed in the ways of God, not just not just for the culture, but first for our personal life, for our personal ethical integrity. Secondly, and this is important, we never put ourselves in the path of temptation. We rather avoid areas and situations that we know tempt us. When we are tempted, we must make a conscious decision to flee from the very thing that is tempting us, as Joseph did when he fled from Potiphar's wife. Remember this, temptation is not simply seeking to seduce you, it is seeking to corrupt you. And if you are entering into temptation, you will be corrupted. If you are tempted to be a spendthrift, stop surfing Amazon. I mean, it's not a rocket science. It's very simple. If you have a problem with your your stewardship of your money, get away from spending, like, as they used to say, a drunken sailor. If you have problems with alcohol, then don't frequent bars and do not keep a stash of liquor available at home. If you're tempted to view pornography, turn off the internet. And if you can't control yourself, get rid of the internet altogether or have someone put a lock on the sites you are not allowed to view. Now, as far as that's concerned, as to that point, if you're unable to control your lusts, if you're unable to control yourself, then we have to ask some very probing, very uncomfortable questions. Are you really captive to the will of God? Are you really a Christian? Because the scripture says, if you can't control yourself, you're as a city with broken down walls and everything's going to flood into those gates. And then you have to ask another question. Do you really want to mortify that sin? When we coddle sin, when we coddle temptation, we're saying we don't really want to mortify that sin. Now, these are real concerns that need to be addressed. Because if you don't get your act together as a Christian, we will continue to go down the slippery slope into tyranny and oppression. Solomon says this in Proverbs 6.27. In Proverbs 6.27, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes be not burned? Stop playing with the things that are going to destroy you. The second point. Now, once you're in control of your own life, your own passion, you are then poised, able to get your marriage. If you're married, if you're if you're married, you're able then to get your marriage in order. If your marriage is in order, then and only then can you move on to the next area of God's kingdom commission, your family. So How do we get our marriages in order? Well, first, you have to take your oath of covenant and obligation to your wife or your husband seriously. 
And I mean seriously. Secondly, you must maintain an open, honest, and intimate communication. And I don't want to hear, well, I'm not very communicative. Then you should have not gotten married. You should have figured that out first. Then you get married. Because communication is what holds, it's the glue that holds the marriage together. So, an open, honest, and intimate communication with your spouse. You listen to them intently, and then you communicate your own thoughts. But first, but first you listen. Your spouse doesn't want to hear what you have to say until your spouse knows that you have heard what he or she wants to say. Notice what Solomon says. And I would say that by the inspiration of God in Solomon, he understood what it was to be married. Notice what he says. First, he records what the Shulamite says. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Tell me, O thou whom my soul lovest, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon, for why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companion? This is an obligation to one man. Here, the spouse shuns all others that would draw him away for that spousal fidelity and covenant obligation to the one true love. Note how the lovers deal with temptation. Solomon's song, chapter 2, verse 15. Take, in other words, the Hebrew here is seize, take hold of, in other words, take us the foxes, those little foxes that spoil the vines. For our vines have tender grapes. My beloved is mine and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. Take those foxes and wring their necks, in other words. Don't let temptation enter in. They deal with the foxes of temptation that are there for the purpose of destroying the marriage covenant. That's what wickedness does. It destroys the covenant. And make no mistake about it, the wicked are on a quest to destroy the biblical marriage, the biblical family. BLM is seeking to destroy the biblical marriage and the biblical family. The LGBTQ+, and all of the other letters in the alphabet that they can come up with, they are seeking to destroy the biblical marriage and the biblical family. Marxism, communism, the 619 Project, the Social Justice Warriors, they're all in it for one reason and one reason only, to destroy your family. And they are doing this by destroying the biblical marriage. Now consider how the lovers speak to one another. My beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphire in the vineyards of Endigli. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes. Notice what he's doing. He's looking at his wife and that is all that he sees. That is all that he's looking at. He's got a focus. Thou art fair, thou hast dove's eyes. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. What does that even mean? It means it's well watered. It's cared for. It's not withered. The beams of our house are cedar and our rafters are fur. In other words, it's strong. No one's going to get in there. No one's going to destroy it. He continues, Stay me with flagons, flagons of wine. Comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. Notice, I'm lovesick. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand doth embrace me. Notice the supportive nature of the spouse to his wife. 
She trusts him because he's trustworthy. And here is a man captivated by the beauty of his wife. He focuses upon her alone and she upon him. And this is language of godly commitment. Every time there's a breakdown in focus, there is the possibility of adultery. Solomon gives us, us men especially, an example of how we are to be toward our spouse. Notice what he says, Song of Solomon 4, 9 and 10. Thou has ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou has ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine and the smell of thine ointments than all spices. The smell of thine ointments than every other spice out there. Okay, so once your marriage is secure, and believe me, it takes work, especially in this period of history when the forces of evil are daily seeking to destroy it with the click of a mouse or the way the world is structured today. The forces of evil are always at work to destroy your marriage and your family. But once that's in order, then you can get your your family in order. Once your marriage is in order, you get your family in order. And that too takes effort. But it takes more than simply effort. It takes perpetual sacrifice and prayer. It's been said that every time you have another child, you have to sacrifice a little more. You have to constantly study the Word of God, relying on His Spirit to assist you as you raise your children. It's not about having children. It's about raising them as godly warriors. Raising Davids. Now once your life is in order, then your marriage and then your family, then. Then and only then. So you all with young families, your season may not be to go out there and help the world. Your season might be raise a godly family. That's your quiver. That's what you are going to use to destroy the wicked of the world. And so once all these aspects of life are in order, not perfect, mind you, but in order, in visible order, then you can get involved in the culture war. Once your life is in order, then your marriage, then your family, then you can engage in the culture. Then you can get involved in the affairs of the culture by making yourself visible, conspicuous, and vocal. I have to add this, however. Before David was able to establish himself as God's dominion man, he tended his sheep. He fed them and protected them, and he did not fail to leave them with a capable shepherd in order to obey his father by bringing provisions to his brethren. The point is this. The maturation of the family and its preparation for cultural dominion, that culture war, begins by ministering to God's people in God's house. It is within the church community which acts as a training ground for all other ministry. If you cannot minister here at home, you are not able to minister out there. After service to God's people is complete, then you're able to challenge the giants of the Philistines without fear and without apology. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've seen capable men and women shun ministering in the church in order to minister outside the church. And think about what they're actually doing. They're desiring to minister to the unbelievers before and instead of the people of God. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if Christ ignored ministering to the church and only focused upon the unbelievers in the world? So once God's people learn to minister in the house of the Lord, 
among and for God's people, then they can say that they're able to make it known that we speak for God, who is the creator and sovereign Lord of the universe without hypocrisy. In a word, only then can God's people take lawful dominion. Now, not domination, but dominion, godly dominion, by advancing the righteousness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But what are we as dominion men and women to advance? What are we advancing? When we use the phrase, advancing the kingdom of God, which we use here often, what does it mean? What does it mean to advance the kingdom of God? And how is it actually achieved? And the answer is painfully simple. We advance the kingdom by first proclaiming to ourselves that the law of God is both good and profitable for every aspect and institution of life. It is our safeguard in life. The law of God is is pure. It's godly. You think about what David writes in Psalm 119 and in Psalm 19. At every turn, he praises the law of God as our guiding force, our guiding factor. And secondly, not only do we proclaim it to ourselves, but we do all that we can to establish that law wherever we are placed in life, in our family, in our marriage, in the church, and then in the world. Wherever God has providentially placed us, In our lives and careers, we are to promote a righteous order as husbands, as wives, as fathers, as mothers, as sons, as daughters, as grandfathers, as grandmothers, aunts, uncles, friends and brethren, employees, employers. We are to advance the crown rights of King Jesus. Wherever we find ourselves in God's orchestrated world, we advance his law word. David was a dominion man and he was not letting this incredible opportunity of facing the giant, pass him by. Just think about that. While Israel is quaking in their boots, David's saying, just let me at him. Just let me at him. He's so big, I can't miss. And that's another point that needs to be made. We are never to let an opportunity to advance the kingdom of God pass us by. We need to pray for opportunity. We didn't have to pray for this opportunity. It just came upon us because we haven't been praying for it. Maybe if we were praying for it, it would have been different. But this is what God had for us. We must pray for opportunity. And when opportunity presents itself, we have to pray how to deal with it. So we need to pray for opportunity. And then we need to pray that we might recognize that opportunity, that certain opportunity, when it's presented to us providentially. What's happening in our world today is God is presenting us with an opportunity to show forth our faith. And we haven't even recognized it as an opportunity to show forth our faith. Like Israel, cowering because of a grand opportunity. Think about the difference between David and all of Israel. We have been given a great opportunity in the United States with all that's been happening and we need to take advantage of it. We need to show the world who rules in the universe. Now the question is, why are so many opportunities missed? Well, to be sure, God daily presents us with fresh opportunities to advance his truth. But why are so many missed? Well, let me give you 11 reasons. Lack of kingdom focus. We're not thinking God's thoughts after him. We're not focused. Second, lack of kingdom passion. Oh, everybody's got passion about something. Usually it's about the things that make us feel good. Because by nature, we're narcissistic, And by nature, we like to be coddled. Lack of kingdom focus. Lack of kingdom passion. Lack of faith. Israel was faithless. 
lack of the fear of God and the importance of the mission of God, a failure to embrace our covenant obligation as children of God. We have a covenant obligation, a failure to recognize your place as a servant. Also, worldliness. We are so worldly. We drink in the world every day. How can you not be worldly? What needs to happen is a recognition of just how worldly we are and then to deal with it biblically. Laziness. We are, you know, we go online on the internet and if it doesn't pop up that page in a nanosecond, we are freaking out. We want things now. We're lazy. We don't want to wait for anything. We don't want to work for much. We want things handed out to us. And that's why today people are taking the gift. People are taking the gift. The stimulus for this. The stimulus for that. Stimulus. I'll give you a stimulus so you can destroy your DNA. And they take it. And they forget what Moses said. The gift blindeth the eye of the wise. You take the nickel, you get the noose. You take the shekel, you get the shackle. And they're drinking it in. Also, pietism. Well, you know, we're very holy and, you know, we can't get involved in the world out there because the world is a dirty place. You ever look in your heart lately? Pretty dirty, I'd say. Get out there and clean it up as you should be cleaning up your own heart. Selfishness. We live in a me-centered, navel-gazing world. We have a navel-gazing mindset. And if it doesn't, Advance my agenda? Well, God's second place. And finally, the perpetual making of excuses. You know, I'm just too busy. Really. I will tell you this. The fact of the matter is this. God will not entertain any excuses since He is your master. And that's something else we don't understand. The, the, the relationship between master and slave, master and servant. He's our master and He's a good master. He's a merciful and righteous master. We have to recognize the master and servant relationship. He is our master and he has commanded us to be under his authority. When the Roman centurion, think about it, a Roman, not a Christian, not an Israelite, a Roman centurion, When the Roman centurion asked the Lord to heal his servant, he said this, an acknowledgement of his position in the hierarchy. Notice what he says, Matthew 8, 5 and following. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say unto this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh. And to my servant do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled, and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. The lesson here focuses on faith. A man of faith understands his place in the world's hierarchy and in God's kingdom. I think we've missed much of this lesson. When the master says go, we go. 
When the master says, preach the gospel, we go. When the master says, raise your family in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, we do that. When he says, love your wife, love your husband, love your children, we do that because he says to do it and we don't question and we don't wait. He says, go, we say, yes, now we go. We need to recalibrate our understanding of our relationship with God. If he sends us here, we say, yes, Lord, whatsoever thy will be done. And we do this without question, without murmuring, without complaining. But we also must obey with exceeding great joy. We just can't say, oh, well, I'm under authority. I'm just going to go and uh, I'm not happy about it, but I'm a man under authority. No, 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 no. Don't bother. Don't bother. Don't do it if you don't do it with great joy. We have to do what God's commanded us with exceeding great joy, knowing that God has counted us worthy to speak and act in his behalf. David was acutely aware that God had set up this scenario with Goliath specifically to catapult David into the limelight of Israel's catalog of heroes. We need to be conspicuously active in the battle for righteousness in every area of life. The boldness of David's declaration eventually finds its way to the ear of Saul. Why do you think that is? Saul, he was busy with his own problems and David's talking to his brothers and some of the other men and And all of a sudden, what David was saying, it reaches the ear of the king. Why do you think that was the case? Well, because no one else was saying those things. These were bold declarations. These were out of the the ordinary. It was an anomaly to Israel's ears to hear this shepherd boy say, you let me at him and I'll take care of it. David's passion for God was an anomaly at this point in Israel's history. It was an oddity and it reached, finally reached the ears of Saul. It was something that Israel was unprepared to declare. Why? Why were they unprepared? Because they were afraid. But not only were they afraid, they feared man. David's language was newsworthy. And being newsworthy, people took notice and they brought it to Saul. So hearing the boldness of this young man, Saul sends for him. And notice what we read here in verse 31. And when the words were heard which David spake, they rehearsed them before Saul. And Saul sent for David. Now once in the tent of Saul, David doesn't hesitate to declare his intention. Notice the consistency of the boldness of the shepherd boy. He's very bold among his brethren and among the people there who were cowering. But he's just as bold before the king. He had a consistency of testimony. And David said to Saul, note this, let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Notice what he's saying. Don't let the men of Israel be afraid. Don't let them be cowards. These were the words of Christ over and over again to the people of God, to the people of His day, to the people of David's day, and to the people of our day. These are the words of Christ. These are the words of faith. Faith in the midst of fear. Faith while facing down the giant. But notice how David identifies himself, curiously, as the servant of Saul in the same way as Christ shows himself a servant. Now what is interesting here is that David also identifies him as the servant of Saul. So if David's a type of Christ and Saul's a type of Adam as we've seen, how does it square with Christ as a type? 
Well, simply this. Saul here represents the Adamic race. Christ came to save a remnant of the Adamic race as a suffering servant. And this is the entire reason for the foot washing example during the Passover meal, where Christ, speaking of himself, declares, but he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Christ is the servant. David says, I'm the servant of Saul. I'm going to serve the king in order to save my people Israel. God identifies Christ as his servant in Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the nations. David then places himself in the midst of the battle by declaring that he will fight the Philistine. Notice what it says here. In your Bible it says, Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. But that's not really what David's saying. David is not only saying that he will fight the Philistine. In fact, he's really not even saying that at all. The Hebrew word that God uses for fight is actually the word which means to devour. David's not saying, I'll fight with the Philistine. He's not saying, I'm going to wrestle with the guy. He says, I am going to devour that giant. I am going to utterly destroy him. David is telling Saul that he will devour Goliath to the point where there will be nothing left of the uncircumcised Philistine. Now that's a bold move. Not just going to wrestle with the guy. Not going to fight say, okay, I got more points than the giant. They lose. I win. No. I'm going to absolutely decimate him. In the same way that God is a devouring fire that devours in a warfare battle against the wicked, the wicked of the world, so too is David saying that he's going to devour the Philistine, even like a devouring fire, where nothing will be left. Hearing this incredible declaration, in Saul's mind, it may have been a bit proud and presumptuous, so he responds, and Saul said to David, thou art not able. Notice, he's already making a value judgment. You're not able to go as against this Philistine to fight with him? Because you're just a young man. Remember what Israel said to Samuel? You're an old man. And yet Samuel, when he took Agag, he cut him into pieces. And all Israel feared. An old man, a young man, it doesn't really matter, does it? You're just a young man. Thou art but a youth. And he, oh, a man of war from his youth. Saul, looking with the eye of sight, David, functioning by the hearing of faith. Saul rejects out of hand any notion that David is able to beat Goliath on the basis of his age and the fact that Goliath was a skilled warrior and David was not. So he's, he's looking at David with the eyes of man, not of faith. But David was in fact a skilled warrior. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and smote him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by the beard. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Almost barehanded, killing this animal, this ferocious animal. And I slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. This was David's resume. These were his credentials. He had defeated a lion and a bear with his bare hands. What could Saul ask for? What more could he ask for? But what is astonishing about David's testimony is that he promises to do the same thing to the giant of the Philistine. Notice where he says, And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. 
Now, these weren't words of pride. They weren't words of self-adulation. This wasn't even the testimony of David the man, but rather the testimony of God, because David is going to give all the glory to God. Notice verse 37. David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear. It's the Lord. The Lord did this. This was the reason for David's faith. This was what made him a bold man. He was trusting in God in the face of possible annihilation. He was trusting God. Notice what he says. God will deliver me. God will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. He was so sure. Why could he be so sure? Because he knew God. And he knew what his motives were. So hearing this, Saul agrees. And Saul says unto David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. But then, in typical Saul fashion, he suggests a worldly solution. Because that's all he had to offer. And Saul armed David with his armor, and he put on a helmet of brass on his head, and he armed him with a coat of mail. He gives him the weapons of the world. So what Saul does here is gives him, by his typical worldly mind, the weapons of the world. Certainly, Saul had trusted them in the past, but to his shame, they're of no use to the true man of God, David the faithful. So David rejects them out of hand. And David girded his sword upon his armor, and he said to go, for he had not proved it. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David put them off. Rightly, he put them off. Now, we need to follow David's example by never trusting in worldly weapons. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't use worldly weapons when we need to, but we are not to trust in them. That's the key. While we may use them to defend ourselves, our families, our churches, from every kind of tyranny, both foreign and domestic, we are not to trust in them. Rather, we are to only trust in God, who teaches us how to use those weapons, who teaches us how to devour the enemy, who teaches us how to fight. So already a seasoned warrior, when he penned Psalm 144, David tells us this, Blessed be Yahweh, blessed be the Lord my strength, which teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight. He's giving all the glory to God. David rejects Saul's attempt to provide armor that could not be proven since it was not an armor of faith, because only faith is a proven weapon against secular worldliness, because secular worldliness is not effective. The apostle explains what type of armor is invincible. Put on the whole armor of God. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Above all, he says, above all, take the shield of faith. That's what quenches the fiery darts of the wicked. So what David is actually stating by saying that he had not been able to prove Saul's worldly armor is that David had no skill in that type of worldly fighting. So when someone asks you to prove the Bible is true, don't take the bait. Just tell them what the Bible says and let God deal with them that way. His skill and the victory provided by that skill was of the Lord because of his faith. Why then should he have taken upon himself the weapons that could easily have been his defeat? It would have ensured his defeat. Moreover, why not trust God in this battle as he had trusted God in every other battle? He already had a track record of trusting God. And this is why he declares to the menacing giant, when we finally get to verse 45, 
Then David said to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I, I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. I come to you with the weapons of the word of God and I will devour you by them. May God remind us in our daily battles against the menacing giants of sin, temptation and depravity, even the giants of wickedness and tyranny, that the weapons of our warfare are not initially carnal, they're not worldly, but they're mighty through God. And only God can equip us in our fight to the pulling down of those strongholds that so easily cause us to fear and beset us. So, having put off Saul's armor, David faces the giant in the battle to end all battles. We'll explore that next when we continue in our series, Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition in the first book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.